Hello, dear listeners, and welcome back to A Hamster with a Blunt Penknife, the only Doctor Who commentary podcast who give a veneer of sophistication. Ooh. I'm Brendan. I'm Sai. <laughs> and I'm Joe. And we are here today to talk about part two of the 1983 story, Terminus. Uh, we previously left our uh, TARDIS crew in a precarious situation with um, uh, the Doctor, Nyssa, and Kari surrounded by Lazars, and Turlo and Tegan having crawled into some ventilation shafts to escape getting debagged by a bunch of extras, including <laughs> Kathy Burke. So, uh, so we're going to, I think, just head straight in, shall we? Mm-hmm. That's not a bad ending, is it, really? You've been doing this podcast with Malarkey for a long time. (laughs) That was effortless. (laughs) (laughs) Hooray. Well, Cal is in then. All right. Uh, Right. So, fingers on buttons, dear listeners. We are going in five, four, three, two, one. Play. Now, something I noticed about the title sequence, if you watch as Davison's face appears, on the upper left, as it sort of comes out towards you, a star comes out at the same time of his highlight on his upper <laughs> his upper right, left of screen. Attention to <laughs> detail, that's know- what you want. <laughs> <laughs> I'd never noticed that in 35 years of watching Doctor Who. Wow. Oh. It was the 80s, darling, you know, a bit of bling. Yes, indeed. <laughs> Highlights were stellar. Mm, so yeah, we're we're back in the shuffling corridor now. Poor Janet Field in a Maastrichtson. I mean, they're they're heading under the grating now. I mean, do they even go into terminus? Yeah, I do they? So. No, I think they stay on the ship. Ooh, I think you're right. Or maybe right at the end. Yes. When we say goodbye to Nyssa. I think that might be. Well, that that was meant to be shot on Terminus, but ends up being shot on the corridor set mm. of of the of the ship. I think you're right. I I don't think they actually make it oh, into I'm, Terminus. I'm going to have to watch carefully now. Oh, Brendan, no one ever says I'm right. Well, Thank you so much. <laughs> <laughs> you don't know what you've done now. Well, there's... There's something that happens in episode four, and we'll we'll get there because while we're rewatching, I need to check. And Ikari says something, and I'm like, "You don't know that." Oh. Like we know, I'm like, "We know that is the viewer, but you, it's like you've never mm-hmm. been there." And I think I'm right. Um, now, uh, yesterday when I was watching this, I watched it with the the newer the new effects on DVD, and I'm now watching the original effects which despite being done on video look pretty good they're not bad models are they and they're quite nicely shot mm. i did think the cgi yeah. on this you know, one though was un- unobtrusive like it, it was very good there's a lovely shot of the ship coming in and all these little docking tubes coming out mm. and right, then, so janet yeah, and mark have, have moved to film now yes yeah <laughs> So it seems look better than everybody else's and everything else. <laughs> yeah. So these film sequences were um, the trade-off for 
you know, before Mary Ridge even started on the show, they lost a day. This was before losing the overrun and everything. She only had five days where she wouldn't usually have six. So it's like, oh, but we'll give you this Ealing stuff. And it's like, okay, so yeah, we'll film in a bunch of like tunnels. We won't shoot the model shots in Ealing. (laughs) You know, Mm -hmm. we won't shoot like the bridge scenes in Ealing. It's like, nope, some tunnels. And Mark Strickson hated this and destroyed the trousers of his costume. He's Mm -hmm. staring at Janet Fielding's bum for hours. I mean, what's he complaining about? (laughs) It is a fact, you know, that... I do actually um... quite... Oh, sorry, no, I was just going to say, it's a fact that uh, at some point, um, Cy Hart and Fraser Gregory did a commentary with me on The Seeds of Death, where we watched Zoe and Phipps crawling around in ventilation shafts. We also did a commentary on The Impossible Planet, which featured Rose, Tyler, and many people crawling about. In, and this is somewhere in the middle. Um, my point is that Doctor Who hasn't really changed very much over the years. No. <laughs> Does this count as a sexy it's ventilation a... shaft, Joe? Oh, it's on film. Of course it's sexy. <laughs> <laughs> Come on, Brendan. You were going to say something very intelligent then. I, I was just going to say I, I really like the bridge set of the liner. Like, Ever, ever, ever since original Star Trek came about, it's hard to do bridge sets that don't just look like a Star Trek set. But this, um, you know, it's despite the fact the set's symmetrical, the set pieces make it asymmetrical. Here's Sarah Sutton doing some looking for. Oh wait, no, she's doing some fainting first, but then yeah, she's, she's going to be some looking for these computer acting. discs. Yes, <laughs> she's going to be looking for some computer discs by feeling up a pipe on a wall. <laughs> <laughs> and then there's someone who doesn't there. know what a yeah Obi's there and he's he's literally <laughs> just there i mean i can't believe no one can see none him. of them have spotted him in day glow white you know yeah <laughs> but, um, with dick his eye makeup not... dick um dick cole's the um set designer is good at a spaceship he does the one in underworld which again is quite an interesting visually um, spaceship um, bridge set again. Yes, yeah, I love the set on Underworld. Um, and you know, it, it's 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 a set also that when they redress it, and it's meant to be a, a ship of a similar class, but it does look sufficiently different in Underworld. Um, yeah, it's like you know some of the. I would say all of the individual sets are good. It's just the old red dwarf joke about is this ocean grey or military grey? <laughs> mm-hmm. It's very drab, but it I, it's kind of meant to be. Yeah. But imagine if they'd gone for a big kind of gothic spaceship where it was slightly different, which would match the memento mori designs of the warriors and and things like that, and had brass and bronze and things in it and things like that, that would have fitted the script better. Yeah. Yes, totally. And I think an easy way you can bring that in is, you know, you've got the silver highlights of the set and the handrails and the designs on the walls. If you make those a brassy, coppery colour, you bring some colour into it without making it gaudy and you keep the grunginess. Yeah. Yeah. And Um, I think that would have helped the performances as well because if everything's grey and drab, your performances become grey and drab because you're just surrounded by a set that just are creeping in on you the whole time. Mm. Yeah, exactly. Like, 
you know, in the Graham Williams era, we sort of have three years of beige space corridors, but they then made the costumes more colourful, you know, to to elevate to elevate that. And I'm particularly thinking of the Sunmakers, where sometimes you can sort of see where they've papered over the crack between two flats with literal paper, but everyone's got colour-coded costumes in that. So, but... You know, Carrie and Olvia have the bronze collars. You've got the Memento Mori bronze design of the veneer coming up, as you say, Sai. It's it's almost there. Yeah. yeah. It just needed that slight adjustment. And it's, yeah, it's really frustrating because all the elements are almost there. What I would beg everybody mm. to do is to watch this with the production notes um, on it as well, which details... Mm how Gallagher envisaged this in the script and let your imagination fly because what he wrote down and what they realized were two very different things. I got a question for both of you then, because I don't think this is overlit for once. I actually think this is oh, quite, it's quite dark at times. Do you think this yeah. would work better in black and white? Ooh, maybe. Um, you know what? It probably would, because there's so little color in it. There's so little color in it anyway. Um, yeah, if you, yeah, if you desaturated the color, turned up the contrast, which is how you get that very stark black and white look. I mean, look at these shots of Turlo and Tegan in the vents and those close-ups, mm. where it's almost black and white anyway. Yeah, it couldn't hurt. <laughs> I mean, I've always said there's many a Colin Baker story that would benefit from being, you know, shot in black and white. It'd be far less of a visual assault on the eyes. Um, can I ask you both a question? I hate to keep bringing up Blake Seven in this thing. Okay. But, um, there's an <laughs> actor. Who, who else could you ask? <laughs> You're all quiet. So I've got two of the hosts of Maximum Power here in front of me. Um, but is this fellow who comes along in a minute, the fellow who goes, woman, you're beautiful. In the, the yes. episode of Blake Seven, is that? Yeah, it's Andrew Burt, yeah, yeah who plays Jarvis. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know? I think all the guest actors are actually pretty good, especially the ones that it's, work on Terminus, and especially Peter Benson, who is on the screen here, who gives a phenomenally interesting performance. Is really, really good. Mm. Yeah, I, 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 I do like him as Boar. I I think I think Steve Gallagher is incredibly daring naming a character Boar. <laughs> <laughs> you know, um, all all these names come from I I think it's um Norwegian mythology, Norse mythology. Um, and like with Boar, he just cuts cuts off one R. It was B O R R. And he, he becomes bored. But yeah, Peter Benson is so lovely and so sweet in this. And I think this was one of the ones I didn't see until I was about 14. And I remember when I first saw it, it was his performance is the main one I was struck mm -hmm. by. Me too. Me too. And do you know what? It's like, it's such a refreshing element of humour in a story that's so like lacking in any jokes. Yeah, there's a lot of yeah, arguing. Think... Yeah. <laughs> yeah, here's some as you well know dialogue. Yeah. <laughs> um 
you know, I think there is a comedic bent to some of these lines uh, between these two in this argument, but they're both, bless them, they're, they're very good actors and they're both taking this scene very, very, very seriously. <laughs> um, which, is, which means it's great that you have Peter Benson, because if you look at Warrior's Gate, Warrior's Gate is hilarious um, with, uh, with Kenneth Cope and um, uh, with Rorvik and Aldo and Royce. You know, Steve Gallagher knows how to write a good joke. It's just, I think, um, it, it's it's funny that Mary Ridge seems not to pick up on some of the more subtle jokes in this, considering Blake, uh, an important part of Blake 7 was the humour. Like, it was dark humour. But, but it was there, there were very deliberate jokes in there. It was there, yeah. And uh, me- perhaps Chris Boucher just balances that better than um, Gallagher and Sayward. Well, yeah. <laughs> Well, say yeah, sometimes jokes. you can feel, yeah, you can feel the dead hand of Eric Seawood's dialogue revisions all over the yeah. script. I think, especially comparing yeah. it with the script for Warriors Gates, that there are certain very Seawood, you must think us fools lines. <laughs> I feel so sorry for Stephen yeah. Gallagher because I think he's a very good writer. Oh, he's I think he's got writer. brilliant ideas, yeah. and I think both of his stories were hit by production nightmares. And it's just by sort of pure coincidence, Warriors Gate, you know, you had Graham Harper there, Paul Joyce, John Nathan Turner, everyone sort of chipping in with the direction, and they're all very competent. And and then this one was sort of slightly mm-hmm. less successful. Have, have either of you heard um, Nightmare County, the unmade story that Big Finish did a few years back that was was by him, his third oh, script. I freaking love Nightmare Country. What's it about? Okay. Oh, it's so good. Sorry? I don't know. I haven't heard it, so I don't know. Oh, okay. <laughs> so you're going to have to fill us um, in on w- this one. <laughs> I, I I will like so, but now this is about to drop over a skirt oh, and where, yes. where this comes oh. from is... Gallagher thought she would still be in her truck and velvet, so she was going to take her brooch off and drop it. Which makes absolute and sense. It's like, yeah, and instead it's like, oh, she's overheating and she drops her skirt. Sayward, with Sayward's dialogue revisions we were just talking about, like Gallagher often felt they weren't as good as his, but didn't fight it because Sayward's in charge. The one one he fought was Nissa, as she's taking off her skirt, was going to say, my stomach feels so distended. Oh, and Gallagher God. just went, no, just no, have her be no, hot. No. <laughs> oh, boys, um, or Brendan, give her, sigh. Give her a brooch. so hot. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I, I should have said earlier that that skirt's very fetching on you, Joel. Um, <laughs> but, so, uh, but uh, get, getting back to um, Nightmare, and Nightmare, I can't, uh, getting back Is to Nightmare Country. country? Yeah. Um, <laughs> Actually, I'm going to have to look it up because I'm I'm having a Mandela effect moment now. Um, nightmare country. We're always prepared, listeners. Always. Absolutely. I'm never prepared. What are you talking about? <laughs> Doctor Who, Nightmare um, Country. There we go. Nightmare Country. So, yeah, night, Nightmare Country. Uh, had the concept that uh, this group of scientists had created a virtual world to explore. Uh, 
and but one day when they're hooked into it, uh, one of them is murdered. But his simulacrum it still exists in the nightmare world, the nightmare country. So the doctor goes in there to discover who the murderer is. Um, it, during the big finished version, there's also a subplot of these people are temporal engineers, so they're repairing the TARDIS. So it's this murder mystery kind of thing. And, you know, production-wise, it would have required the TARDIS sets, a quarry, and some caves. That's not too demanding. And say, Doctor Who staples, it, yeah. Yeah, and Sayward rejected it with a letter saying, Stephen, this is brilliant, but once again, you've given us a feature film to make, oh. and we don't have the budget oh. to do it. And listening to the Big Finish version, it's like, no, this is Doctor Who's bread and butter. You can do this with the same resources as the Twin Dilemma, for God's sake. <laughs> well, I'm going to say, that sounds pretty much like Frontios. Mm. Exactly, exactly. Like, you know, when push comes to shove, you could ju- you don't need to go to the quarry location for it. Um, and I won't spoil the ending, but it has, it has an ending which shows... Gallagher's usual commitment to understanding the characters. Okay, I'm sold, and 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 I mean, mm. I mean that very sincerely. Oh well, okay. Um, I couldn't yeah. possibly uh, talk about Stephen Gallagher without mentioning uh, my Doctor Who for the '90s Bugs, which I loved with all of my heart in the '90s, and he was the creator of that and wrote a ton of episodes. And I know it's a bit ropey now, but God, I loved it. I absolutely mm-hmm. loved it. Um, so he can do no wrong in my eyes. No, I've I recently watched um, Chima- um, Chimera, which was by him, which was very early 90s um, horror um, genetic engineering um, story. Brilliant. Abs- stands up pretty well. So, yeah, he's a good, good writer. And he's had a really great um, career as both a TV writer and a novelist. So he's done done pretty well. And Doctor Who was lucky to have have him and we should have had more of him. I want to ask you both both a question. I'm going to start with Brendan. What do you think about this story as a finale for Nyssa? Because I think what she goes through is pretty horrific in this story. Yeah, I think there's a bit, I think there's a bit of a mistake in, yes, we're making the story about her, but she's sort of being pushed from pillar to post at all times, you know? And then in, in the last episode, she gets a bit of agency and she's like, hey, I can do this, I can I can do that, etc., etc. Um Whereas later when Janet leaves, and this is actually some praise I have for Eric, Eric Sayward, um, yeah, Tegan isn't involved in the main thrust of the plot in Resurrection of the Daleks, but still gets a lot to do and is still driving her own story. Um, but I, I will say, at least this era, there is an effort when a companion is written out to make their last story about them. And, you know, yeah. you can't do this by just subbing in one of the other characters. No, I'm... I think it's a shame that Nyssa is treated as a victim through a lot of this story. She is, um, like Brenda said, pushed from pillar to post. She's not given a lot of agency because she's infected. She's unwell. Um, but it's a it's a nice ending 
for the character and she goes off to do something that is in character for her and is very caring and nurturing and is a good good way for her to go well i i wonder if if she has to experience what the lazars are going through to sort of make that choice that no i'm going to stay and help these people because this is really bad what they're going through and we can do better yeah yeah i think actually that's that's a really good reading of what what happens oh here we are the big bang dog Oh so that's God. copyright um, by um, Lee Binding, who always referred to the car as the Big Bang Dog. <laughs> I love that he's um he's got uh, he's wearing a, a Prague skin um, as his costume. That's that's a nice, yes. a nice thing. Hard enough to take on a Prague. Well, I do believe that Stephen Gallagher <laughs> tried to be sympathetic with his script directions and suggest darkness and red eyes. Yeah, it was just meant to be a shadow with red eyes. <laughs> Instead, D just straight up rips off um, a design from a book called Barlow's Guide to Extraterrestrials. Oh. Um, so there was a, a novel by Alan Dean Foster, who, um, you know, novelized uh, the first Star Trek movie and Alien uh, he had a novel called Ice Rigger, which had a giant dog alien in it. And there's this book called Barlow's Guide to Extraterrestrials, which takes a bunch of literary descriptions of aliens and has this beautiful artwork. And if you look up the Tran in that book, it's just the gum. Like, <laughs> you know, D, there's, there's interviews where it's like, oh, you know, D was inspired by it. It's like, it's not, it's not inspired. You've ripped it off wholesale. <laughs> Is it sort of pot-bellied like the gum? Um, well, you only see it from the front, but yeah, I think, I think part of the, part of the failure of the Garm is, is the way it moves. Like it's it just shuffle, shuffle, shuffle. Yeah. Yeah. Because, because poor RJ Bell inside the suit can't breathe. Cause again, not enough air holes. No. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> I didn't know this was going to be worn. Brendan. <laughs> Brendan. Can I tell you something that's yes. going to stun you rigid? Okay. I was with the Garm this weekend just gone. You were. Oh, I right. was with the Garm in January. <laughs> There's a museum in uh, Carlisle uh, where he's got all old Doctor Who exhibits and the Garm in his full glory. And may I say lit in a very atmospheric way. If this mm-hmm. guy had been lighting Doctor Who, we would have been in business I, I tell you what, in in the flesh, it's quite impressive. Yeah. Mm. Mm. Yeah, I, I, I do sometimes think with Doctor Who, things look great on the mannequin in the workshop, but then once you get them under the studio lights, it's like, oh. Uh. Yeah, and someone's got to actually manoeuvre it, and yeah, it's not going to work so well. Mm. Are you fellas talking about the murka? Well, that didn't look good in the flesh, I suspect, as well. Um, you know, I like I like the head of the Merka, but yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, imagine it'd be, if it had been more like the Shrivenzal. Oh, I love the Shrivenzal. What do you guys think about this cliffhanger coming up now, then, where uh, the, the fella attacks the Doctor? It's a Doctor Who moment of jeopardy cliffhanger yeah 
I'm going to kill you now with my bare hands in Welsh. <laughs> and poor Turlo, are we supposed to believe he's been electrocuted? Like he's dead in his second story. <laughs> we didn't know what to do with the character, so we just electrocuted him to death. <laughs> Excuse me, that's exactly what they did with Chameleon. They brought him in and then they wrote him out. Mm-hmm. Poor Chameleon. Like, oh no, the shape-shifting robot is really hard to really hard to manipulate. Could we hire an actor to play him week to week? No. Just shove him in the cupboards. <laughs> I think and I, I love how the doc <laughs> I do love how the doctor rolls his eyes there as if he knows she's been captured <laughs> before he even <laughs> Turn my around. back for one minute. <laughs> Davison and actually this is going to be a question I'm going to ask both of you as we see out episode two Davison says on the documentary that that because the production issues were so bad because how sort of Mary Ridge was handling it all was so bad because they were basically doing live television at times like you said Brendan earlier you know it was like no rehearse record it's just record um he admits he said look we were a little bit relaxed in our performances it's not like we didn't care but we just gone beyond the point of kind of giving a shit about this now because it was so badly handled i wonder if you can see that a little bit in his performance what do you think he's very subdued even for davison's doctor he's quite subdued in this one and i know he's peter davison often struggles with um, big moments that uh, someone like Colin Baker or Tom Baker would play huge, like we're at the centre of the universe. He massively underplays the fact that they're at the centre of the universe. And that should have been a big moment. It's a it's a huge part of the story, but it feels under underdone. What do you think, Brendan? Mm. No, I I totally agree with um with Sai. You're very Davison, agreeable. Uh, <laughs> <very> agreeable. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, yeah, like I've I've often said, Davison is quite low down on my list of doctors because of that subdued performance. But he is someone who every time I watch I see something new in his performance because he's not necessarily a character actor at this point I think now he certainly puts in sort of yeah. character actor performances when he does things and it's magnificent because he's got such a sense of comic timing even his big um, finishes Brendan like his big finishes now he oh, is knocking them out isn't he absolutely like everyone talks about the reappraisal of Colin Baker in big finish and so they should he's amazing but Davison Davison brings his extra 15 years of experience now, 30 years of experience or or more to those roles. Like the 40 audios from last year, the the 40 anniversary audios, absolutely stunning. Um, But yeah, I I certainly feel a relaxed attitude from Davison. He never gives a bad performance. No. But certainly things like this, Time Flight... You can see him relaxing a little, and yeah, I think that's possibly a way to get through not enjoying the work at that time. And I think by his third year, um, you know, when you look at something like Warriors of the Deep, I don't think his performance flags in the same way because the material is really good. 
but it's in the scenes with the murker and whatnot, you can kind of see him relax a little, but throughout the rest of everything else, not so much. Yeah. I always wonder if he's like if he is a bit embarrassed by the melodrama. He's such a naturalistic actor. Yeah, I think you see that, don't you, on the um Castrovalva outtakes where he's got to do the cliffhanger acting and he just bursts into laughter because he's just no, I can't I can't do this. I'm not that actor. I think the sort of the worst example is that Mordred Undead cliffhanger where he goes, you know, don't you understand? It'll be the end of me as a time lord. You know, like <laughs> Like he doesn't give a <laughs> shit, but I do. I think it takes a strong director to bring that out of him because then you get to Kate Andrazani and Frontius as well, where he's kind of embracing the melodrama a bit, you know, and he's he's playing it a bit more heightened. But also, think... they're writing character lines for him. There aren't a lot of character lines in this story. It's he is feeding the exposition. Yeah, and there's not a lot of. I, the scenes with with Kari where they're creeping around the corridors, there should be their conversations are so functional that he's not given material that he can get anything out of. You need a what is it? I've just I've just brought them down. Well, jolly good. Now you can put them up again. You know, you need like that. <laughs> well, boys, that's episode two down. Uh, I have a feeling things are going to get. Even more dreary in terms of episode three. <laughs> Are you ready for this? I'm ready. <laughs> I guess. 